Greetings and welcome to the audio etheric transmission The Tales of Sage and Savant, a Twin Star production. This broadcast is brought to you on the first of each month from the Twin Star Studios in sunny Southern California. Our tale stars Eddie Louise as Dr. Petronella Sage, Chip Michael as Professor Erasmus Savant, Emily Riley Pyatt as Mix Abigail Entwistle, and myself, Justin Bremer, as your humble narrator. This month's program, entitled The Heartless Mansion, is sponsored by Edge Science Fiction and Fantasy Publishing and features the music of Marquis of Vaudeville. And now, without further ado, we bring you the tales of Sage and Savant. When last we saw our doctor, she had translaterally migrated into the weakened body of Mix James Cunningham. Why, Provost Cunningham, whatever are you doing in Petra Sage's sleeping closet? Dean Stewart? Uh, Petronella Sage? How, how dare you spy on me? Mix Cunningham, are you quite all right? You don't look well. No, as a matter of fact, I am not all right, and that is why I've come to my laboratory. Uh, I mean to Dr. Sage's laboratory. I am in need of Mrs. Winslow's syrup, and I know she keeps a supply on hand. My provost, whatever is wrong with you that you need morphine? What is wrong with me is my own business, and I should like it to remain such. Now, if you'll pardon me. Begging your pardon, Max Cunningham. I shall leave you to find your medicine. But if you will permit me to see, you look appallingly done in. I believe a regime of porridge, hot toddies and bed is in order. Sage waits until the Dean of Students has taken her leave and then gets down to the real reason for her visit to the lower laboratory in the guise of Cunningham. Jeffrey! Ah, sir! Mr. Cunningham, sir! So nice to see you, sir! Uh, but how did you get into this laboratory? I haven't left my post all morning. Never mind that now, Jeffrey. Is my office still locked up tight? Oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, ever since it was pilfered last month while you were away, I kept it locked and bolted. But uh, how did you know that, uh, sir, seeing as how you were out and about the continent and all? Well, uh, yes, well, uh, McNeish wrote to tell me of the breach and of your prompt actions. I am grateful for your vigilance. Uh, the only key is this one right here in my pocket. I've kept it safe for you, I have. Uh, are you coming back to work then, sir? Not yet, Jeffrey. As you can see, I'm not yet in robust health. But I do need to send an update letter to the dean of school and the staff. Well, come along then. I shall let you in. Thank you, Jeffrey. You are a good man. 
Sage sits at the desk of her greatest nemesis, now vanquished to the life of a Renaissance painter, and composes a series of missives carrying out his specific wishes. She resigns his position as provost, citing health concerns, writes to his mother claiming illness, and for authenticity, releases Geoffrey from service. Having completed her objective, she returns to her attic laboratory and translaterally reassumes her own body. The doctor hurries to get the provost's body squared away, hooking his empty shell back into the life support system. She then hurries out to put the laboratory to rights before the arrival of her friends and traveling companions. Good day, Morning. Petra. Good day, Erasmus, Abigail. What adventures are we off to, to today? I thought we'd take Abigail to the future. Oh, capital idea. How far into the future? Not too far. Perhaps 70 to 75 years? I would love for you to experience the age of motor cars. Swinging jazz. A women wearing trousers. Soda fountains. All right, you two. I know how much you enjoyed your time in Nevada. Yes. Well, no, I, I mean, yes, we did enjoy casino life, but I was actually thinking of going maybe a decade or so further along. But don't worry, Erasmus, I'm sure that they will still have automobiles and ice cream, even if the music has changed in style. Shall we? The three explorers don their Faraday armor and CRAP helmets, and Abigail and the professor settle onto their platforms as the doctor sets the trajectory and recall mechanisms. Once all is in order and the Edison recording is made for posterity, Sage hits the switch and they are off. They awaken in an inky darkness, broken only by flashes of light and the sound of a crashing storm on the other side of heavily curtained windows. The intermittent light reveals a room with high ceilings and crown molding, dominated by a large chandelier which hangs lightless in the center of the ceiling. This crystal monstrosity is, disconcertingly, swinging in a non-existent breeze. Is everyone all right? I don't know. It is so dark and, and my heart is pounding. <laughs> I seem to be having an amplified adrenal response myself. Where are we? Do you see any danger? We're in a room that would suggest a private residence. But there seems to be a great deal of equipment. Scientific equipment. It would be good to get some light so that we could see where I we are. I really like to have some light. I do not like storms like this. They are... They are... <gasps> Wait. The lamp has fallen over. Let me get that. Just... Abigail reaches through the murk to lift what she believes is a fallen lamp. What she lifts from the floor is not a lamp, but a flashlight. Its flared head contains an incandescent bulb, and the chrome handle sports a firm slider switch. Abigail points the lens towards the ceiling and pushes the switch. Light flares, momentarily blinding the young assistant. <laughs> well done, Abigail. That seems to be some kind of electric candle. Here, Abigail, let me take the light. Your eyes will adjust momentarily. Now, first things first. Is everyone all right? Are there any injuries I need to address? I seem to be intact, though I do have some sort of seepage from my nose and ears. 
Sage turns the light toward his voice, and the beam reveals a man in his thirties with shoulder-length curly brown hair, wearing horn-rimmed glasses and a tweed jacket with patches at the elbows. As she brings the light to his face, they see that he is bleeding from his eyes, nose, and ears. Turning the light towards Abigail reveals a girl in her early twenties with a curtain of waist-length brown hair, wearing a tight sweater and a very short skirt over knee-length vinyl boots. Abigail has the same bleeding affliction as the professor. Tell me, do I have the same symptoms of subconjunctival and nasal hemorrhage? Sage closes her eyes and turns the light on herself. She is in the body of a sturdy middle-aged woman in sensible shoes wearing a gigantic bouffant hairdo. She does indeed evince the same bleeding patterns. Yes, you do. What type of injury causes this sort of horrific bleeding? We're all showing the symptoms resulting from barrow trauma. It appears more horrific than it is. It's more akin to a bruise than anything else, unless anyone's eardrums are broken. Bleeding due to rapid air pressure changes. But that happens to underseat divers. How could these bodies have experienced that here in what appears to be, well, a, a sitting room? Good question. Well, let's see if we can determine where we are and what this equipment is for, at um, least. Petra, before we turn to the equipment, can we talk? What is it, Abigail? I seem to be half naked. I'm not wearing trousers, as you said. In fact, I seem to be wearing a half a loincloth and some little slip of silk to cover my bottom and not else. <laughs> yes, that is a particularly short skirt. Uh-huh. Even shorter than the cocktail skirt I wore whilst we were in Nevada. You don't appear in disabil. Perhaps this is just how young women dress in the future. Easy for you to say in your sensible shoes and knee-length skirt. Well, either way, there's nothing to be done about it at the moment. Let's see what else we're dealing with. Sage moves the beam of light slowly across the space, confirming they are in a large sitting room in a stately house. The windows run nearly from floor to ceiling, multi-paned and swathed in heavy velvet drapes and net shears. There are multiple pieces of dark, wood-framed furniture and a well-worn Turkish carpet covering an oak plank floor. As Sage swings the light around to the other side, it reveals a makeshift bank of equipment. Somewhere in the tangle of wires and cords, a small red light is flashing on and off. I would wager the average sitting room wouldn't have this kind of equipment, even in the future. What is that blinking light? More importantly, how is the light blinking when there's no electricity? A good question. Battery power, I imagine, but let's see what we have. They examine the equipment in the uneven light of the flashlight. Sage recognizes a set of thermometers and little else, though she can see that all is powered by electricity. Are there CRIP helmets here anywhere? There seems to be a waveform autolog, but I cannot see what it might be hooked up to. There seems to be an anemometer. Why would an instrument for measuring wind be placed inside a house? The blinking light is coming from this small box. It seems to have a handle. Let me see if I can lift it free. Yes. Abigail, I can't seem to make it out. Can you read what these buttons say? Uh, rec, play, Rue review, FFQ, stop 
eject, pause. The button labeled pause is the one that's depressed. Popped out. Whatever is it? Well, whatever it is, it was designed to do that. You press the button mark stop eject, and this little package was ejected. It would be easier to determine what this is if we had more light. Well, perhaps these will help. I saw this pack lying on the floor near where Abigail found the flashlight. There are two identical packs on the settee. They were designed to be worn crossbody like so. They contain... A flashlight, a notebook, a pen, a small metering device... This is a device to measure the Maxwell Faraday fields in handheld form. Remarkable. Oh, well, that makes no sense. This meeting should not be getting a reading when the electrical system is offline. Oh, here, ladies. Let me offer you my handkerchief. Let's get cleaned up and try to determine where we are and what to do. And so, our intrepid heroes will begin a search of this not-at-all-creepy house that inexplicably causes death by adrenaline and I, excuse me, subconjunctive bleeding. What is all this equipment for? What are they doing in this house? We'll find out after this short musical break. And now, dear friends, we invite you to listen to the spooky melodical emanations of Marquis of Vaudeville. on the 
And now, back to our story. When we left our heroes, they had found flashlights and were better able to see the house they have landed in. We rejoin them now in the illuminated sitting room as they attempt to figure out what all the equipment is for. So we have six thermometers, an animometer, two barometers, and a waveform autolog that we can identify. Erasmus, any luck figuring out the wee box? Well, the package is labeled A and B, so A comes before B. I've placed it in the box thusly and closed the lid. I suppose now I press the play button. Experiment log of Dr. James Cameron, Heartless House, Hampstead Heath, October 31st, 1963. It's an Edison recording! Today my team has set up operations in the main sitting room of Heartless House, a Georgian pile that has a reputation of being haunted to an extreme degree. Research compiled by Mrs. Esther Grundy on the particulars of the history of the Hart family and the tragedies that befell them in this house are compiled in the red file folders marked HIS00002 and HIS003005. Adjoining myself and Mrs. Grundy is my research assistant Yvonne, who will be monitoring temperature variants and wind currents that are reputed to flow through this house prior to any manifestation. I can assume that I'm Cameron, you, Doctor, or Mrs. Grundy, and Abigail, you're obviously the assistant Yvonne. But can either of you make sense of the type of scientific investigation they are undertaking? I am not keen to have those experiments continue unabated if they can lead to death. It'd be quite alright with getting a good night's sleep and venturing out into the world on the morrow. After all, I don't believe that we will be here long enough to complete the Doctor's work. Well, we do have three days on the clock. And honestly, I don't think I could sleep a wink. I'm far too curious about what they were up to and what could have possibly caused their deaths. Oh, I don't know. There's just so much unfamiliar equipment and details that we can, we can never... Oh! What do you have there, Abigail? I don't know. I was just playing with this box. I thought it might be some kind of monocular, but look, this paper has come out of it. What does it say? Oh, it doesn't say anything. Wait. Oh, there's two pieces of paper. That is odd. They're stuck oh. together, but not with glue. Oh, oh my goodness. Oh, there is something on the paper. It has just appeared. Oh, it is coming clear. Oh, oh my goodness. It is. Oh. It is your feet. I mean, I mean your boots. It's a portrait <laughs> of your boots and, and the carpet. Oh, this must be a camera. Oh, here, Abigail. L let me see it. Yes. Okay, no, stand over there. Yes, right there. Here. Okay. Like this. Okay, now, now you take one of me. Come on over. Wait, oh, see this look Hold on. No, no, no. Mm -hmm. Okay, while you two are playing with your toy, I'm going to find out what the rest of this equipment is for. The legend of Heartless House is this. The original house was built in 1740 by James William Hart, a prosperous tea merchant. In 1748, Hart's young wife died in childbirth with the second of his children, and from that point on it was as if the family were cursed. As a result of his grief, Hart's business went into decline, and he began to spend more and more time away from the house. By the time the youngest child was six years old, the father was a nearly unknown presence in his own home. 
the children were raised by a succession of nannies, each more cruel and parsimonious than the last. By the time the girl was eight and the boy seven, the hothouse could no longer even be called a home. The children were looked after, if that term even applies, by a caretaker couple with dubious references. From here, the story dissolves into legend and gossip. What we know. By the time James Hart came home eight months later, both his children were dead, and the house was overrun by a gang of layabouts and ne'er-do-wells. Wait, that's it? But what happened to the children? Well, I don't know. The box just stopped. Oh, here, let me look. Oh, I think it's reached the end of side A. Let's see what happens when we turn it over. The legend of the children's death is lurid, and if you wish to read the entire thing, you will find it in Cope's Collected Tales of Horror and Hauntings, 1956 Cambridge University Press. For this log, I shall recount only the very last part of the story. Colette and James, the Hart children, were kept in rags and starved for the better part of six months. When their caretakers grew tired of even this appalling level of care, the children were locked into the cellar of the house with a large and vicious dog to guard them and keep them from escaping to inform the authorities of the criminal way they were treated. There is a cistern in the cellar, so the children had water, but no access to food. That is horrible! Eventually, the caretakers stopped all care, and that is when the true horror happened. As both the children and the dog grew hungrier, the natural competitiveness of the mammalian world set in, and they each began to eye the other as a potential source of food. Colette was the first to succumb to weakness, and as she lay, too weak to defend herself, the dog attacked. Left without his sister and a newly strengthened adversary, young James formed a plan. Using the splintered thigh bone of his sister, which he had sharpened against the flagstone floor, James antagonized the dog into attacking. The beast clamped his teeth on the poor boy's throat, and as the dog began the violent shaking that would sever the boy's jugular, James plunged his makeshift spear deep into the beast's black heart. Huh. Well, that is a lurid story. Do you think this is why these people are here in this house? Are they investigating supernatural phenomena here, like the Society for Psychical Research? Ghost hunters? Let's find out. Over the centuries since the death of the children, the anomalies that have been reported in Heartless House include cold spots, vortex manifestations, ectoplasm clouds, and all manner of banging, knocking, and moaning. It is my contention that our instruments shall prove that the colloquial haunting of this house is nothing more than physics and natural phenomena. We shall measure temperature variance, air currents, and air pressure fluctuations both inside and outside of the house, whilst making audio and video recordings and documenting with photographs and our personal logbooks as well. Yes, Abigail, I'm afraid we are in the body of ghost hunters. Erasmus, what do you think he meant by audio and video recordings? I said recording. I'm assuming recording is still to preserve to make note of. Adio, adio, adire is to hear in Latin. Video, videre is to see. Oh, maybe he means the camera. The little box captures the audio and the camera captures the video? What was that? Uh, I'm sure it's just a dog out in the storm. 
What was that? I think the door has just blown open. I'll go close it. I don't think you should go anywhere alone. If there is a dog out there and the door has blown open, there will soon be a dog in here. I would prefer to get ahead of that problem. And without waiting for her young friend's approval, the doctor heads out into the main hall on a mission to shut the... the... the door is firmly closed. But the floor of the hall is wet, as if the rain had blown in through an open door, and there are muddy paw prints of a very large dog in the wet. The hair on the back of the doctor's neck stands to attention, and she has the feeling of an animal's hot breath against the back of her legs. Ridiculous Petrusage. Those prints were probably left by the family pet. Hello? Is someone home? The doctor whirls at the sound, but there is nothing there at all. The hall is empty. She whirls back, and the floor is dry. The paw prints vanished. She shakes her head, disgusted at her overactive imagination. Just to be certain, she steps to the door, preparing to open it and face the storm, prove to herself that there was no dog. Only the door won't open. It is not locked, the doorknob turns, but the door itself will not budge. It is as if an invisible hand pushes against it, holding it firmly closed. The storm outside has redoubled its fury, as if the invisible wind also wants the door open, as if there is a force outside desiring entry. Sage hurries back to her friends, conscious of a vague feeling of uneasiness and a desire to not be alone in the house. Petra, is everything okay? Yes, no, I think so. I believe I'm letting the storm get to me this evening. I wonder if our Mrs. Grundy was the nervous type. A particularly violent and close strike rocks the rooms and sets the trio's hearts to pounding. Before you got distracted by random noises, I was about to tell you that I think we may be in an actually haunted house. Listen to this journal entry I found in the notebook. At 9.43 p.m., a storm rose outside and the wind began to howl. We double-checked that all the doors and windows were locked tight and the only occupants of the house were ourselves. We heard the howl of a dog and then the sound of the front door opening. Dr. Cameron went to investigate. Finding the hallway wet and a distinct set of muddy paw prints on the floorboards, he documented this with photographs 005 and 006. When he looked away from the prints to check the quality of his photographs, all trace of the prints had disappeared from the floor. The doctor came back into the sitting room to report this manifestation and... There's a gap here, and then the writing resumes, but it's quite a bit messier. Cameron was marked by the hound. We are hunted. Heartless is coming for our hearts. Doomed. Doomed? What else does it say? That's it. That's the end of the entry. There's nothing else in this notebook. A haunted house. We are in a haunted house, in a storm, at night, without electricity. And with no way out. What do you mean, no way out? Well, when I was in the hall, I tried to open the door, but it wouldn't budge. And I just checked these windows, and they too are sealed shut. Swollen shut, most likely. Old houses, you know, Abigail. Really, Petra, you shouldn't scare the girl. Well, I'm afraid I will not be able to keep from it. You see, I saw those paw prints just now. The ones that disappeared? 
those yes, footprints? Yes, those very ones. And I heard a growling as from a very angry dog just behind me. But when I looked, there was nothing there. And when I turned back, the prince had disappeared. This makes no sense. How can appear and disappear and reappear in paw prints hurt a body? Well, there is some work being done on the nature of fright and the adrenal response. There is also the cultural significance of fear of death to consider and the general health of the body experiencing fear. You can be frightened to death? Well, it's not my field, but there are Eastern yogis that prove that the mind can take control over the physical processes of the body. Well, if such a thing can be done to produce positive results, such as those gained by meditation, then it's logical to assume that the brain would have the same ability to wield influence over the body and produce material harm. Do you see that? The, the aniometer is spinning. Must be a window open somewhere. They all still seem secure. Hello? Children? Hello? I'm not sure they're really here, Abigail. We might just be hearing things. No, I hear them distinctly. They're, they're just out in the hall. Without waiting to see if the others follow her, Abigail runs into the hall and follows the voices she hears up the staircase and onto the landing of the first floor. This floor is designed gallery style, allowing the entry hall below to look up to a ring of doors framed by balcony railing. The professor and doctor follow the young scientist, the beams of their flashlights playing over the dusty balustrade. As she ascends the staircase, the EMF meter in the doctor's bag emits a reading, startling everyone. I must have left the Maxwell Faraday meter in the on position. I still don't understand how it is getting electrical force readings when clearly there is no electricity. In fact, judging by the state of the place, I would assume that no one actually lives here. Perhaps there is no electricity even at the mains. Well, if anyone does live here, they are rubbish housekeepers. I think we may be hearing things. Maybe the storm combined with our fears. I think we just need to try and not let our imaginations run away with us. Come, let's go back to the sitting room. At least there, there's less dust. The trio of on-edge explorers returned to the one room that gave them a modicum of normality. I am very curious what these researchers were doing with all this marvelous equipment, but... Perhaps in the morning we'll be able to restore the electricity and satisfy that curiosity. We'll be less prone to frightful imagination in the light of day as well, which I think would be a very good thing. Doctor, do you think these sounds we've been hearing and the, the paw prints you saw, do you think these things are really happening? 
Well, I have to admit, there are some phenomena that are occurring in physical space. As far as we can observe, voices we're all hearing, etc. But there are many explanations for shared hallucinations, and to my knowledge, there is no scientific proof of ghosts or of paranormal activity. Uh, perhaps that is what these scientists were here to discover. Uh, perhaps these advanced scientific instruments can record things that our more crude devices in 1895 cannot. And on that note, I believe tea is in order. It will help us calm the nerves, and then we can find some bedrooms and get some sleep. I'd rather stick together, if it's all the same to you. Um, maybe we can sleep on the settees in this room? Capital idea. Let's find the kitchen and make our tea. Will our heroes avoid the fate of the first trio of paranormal investigators? Is it possible to die of fright? We'll find out after this brief pause for a word from our sponsor. Hello, listeners. Chip Michael here, audio engineer for the Tales of Sage and Savant. I like stories that excite my imagination, explore new worlds, and help me discover people different than those around me. This is the kind of stories we tell with Sage and Savant, and this is the kind of fiction published by our sponsor, Edge Science Fiction and Fantasy Publishing. Featuring works by established authors and emerging new voices, Edge is pleased to provide quality literary entertainment, including book one of the tales of Sage and Savant, Transmigrations, in both dead tree format and in the language of our robot overlords, or as Edge likes to say, in both print and pixel. Look for books with the Edge logo at your local bookstore and online for Kindle, Kobo, Nook, iTunes, and Google Play. Find your next great read at www. EdgeWebsite.com. Yes, dear friends, you heard it here. For stories certain to get your blood pumping, trust Edge Science Fiction and Fantasy Publishing. And now, back to our show. Our heroes have decided to venture below stairs in search of tea. Anyone who has ever read a scary story or watched a horror film could have told them that this was a bad idea. Do you hear that? It is a child crying. No, there's a dog growling. Come on now. This is exactly what we said we would not do. We are not going to let our imaginations get the best of us. Do you feel that? It is suddenly very cold. Fun fact about cold spots. They're an architectural anomaly that can be accredited to such things as interior air currents and the physical interactions of building materials. This does not feel natural. Uh, Did the legend say that children died? In the cellar? I suddenly don't feel like I need tea after all. Uh, Perhaps it would be best to just go back upstairs. Do you see that? (gasps) The flashlight beam plays across the hall and up the stairs. A set of muddy paw prints advances downward, tread by tread. Each stair is dry one moment, and the next second it is wet and marked by evil. The hair on our hero's arms stands on end and their pupils dilate in horror at this apparition. I see it! Is there another way up? There must be a second stairway somewhere! We've got to get out of here! Without waiting for her friends, the young scientist turns and runs away from the advancing horror. Her ability to reason has fled. 
and she is thinking only of the need to be free from the oppressive fear. Abigail! Wait! We're coming! We should stay together! The dank hallways below stairs in this cursed house offer no indication of a route to safety. The peeling paint and cracked plaster flash by in the searching flashlight beams, offering no solace nor comfort against encroaching madness. At the sound of pursuit, Abigail screams and sprints harder, careening around a corner and smacking into a blank wall. It's blocked through the way out. That thing's gonna get us. What is it? Why would it want to us? I know this seems horrific, but it must be in our imagination. We should be able to overcome this. Just breathe. Ladies, I hate to break this to you, but I'm not sure this is just imaginary. The ladies turn to see what Savant is speaking of. The hallway is blocked by the form of a gigantic dog. The animal's tawny hide drips with blood from a gaping wound in its chest. It has a large, blockish head with dark muzzle. Its lips are pulled back to reveal sharp and menacing fangs. We are imagining this. Surely this dog is not here. Your philosophy will accept the fact of transmigration and inhabiting different bodies across time and space, and you reject the evidence before your own eyes? I have data to prove transmigration! Sage is filled with anger at the fright she is experiencing, and she throws her flashlight directly at the apparition. As the chrome-handled bludgeon flies through it, the dog explodes into a cloud of mist. This is our chance! Run! They run, leaving behind the throne and now broken flashlight. With certain horror, they feel the presence of the phantom dog snapping at their heels. They think only of getting out of the dank basement and back to the relative safety of the sitting room above. The house contributes a symphony of terror to goad their fear. Crashes and moans, cries and wailing. They race to the bottom of the stairs and plunge upwards, adrenaline surging, hearts pounding. Abigail reaches the top of the stairs first. The giant dog reappears directly in her path, jaws opened and lunging for her throat. In sheer dread, she screams and throws herself backwards. Sage and Savant are right behind her and see the dog half a second after Abigail. Their screams are interrupted as Abigail plummets into them, knocking them off their feet. The sheer momentum of panic flings them down the stairs, breaking bones and crushing skulls. Mercifully, they are not conscious to see the ghost hound descend on their broken flesh. <laughs> I have to admit, it was not the most fortuitous of transmigrations. Petra, are you all right? I shall have to contact the Society for Psychical Research. I wonder how far their research in shared psychic phenomenon has progressed. Are the physical manifestations we experienced unusual, or was it even real? Can a shared delusion manifest a physical component? I need to make some notes. We've lost her. It is her superpower. Every trauma, every emotional experience is simply fodder to feed into her research. She can transmit horror into curiosity and suffer no bad effects. Well, that is not a strength of mine. I'm not sure I would call it a strength to constantly shield your emotions behind a wall of intellect. 
Is Dr. Sage's ability to set aside her emotions in order to process scientific data a detriment to her well-being? Will she allow the curiosity aroused by this event to steer her away from her primary research? Will she allow the body of poor Mix Cunningham to recline in her closet until death has claimed it? We'll find out in the next episode of The Tales of Sage and Savant. The Tales of Sage and Savant is a Twin Star production, brought to you on the first of each month from our Southern California studios. Starring Eddie Louise as Sage, Chip Michael as Savant, Emily Riley Pyatt as Abigail, and Justin Bremer as the narrator. Soundtrack music, sound design, and audio engineering by Chip Michael. The theme song for season three was interpreted and recorded by Valentine Wolf. Special music in this episode was provided by Marquis of Vaudeville. Check them out at marquisofvaudeville.com. We would like to extend our gratitude to this month's sponsor, Edge Science Fiction and Fantasy Publishing. Episode 303, The Heartless Mansion, was written by Eddie Louise. Are you interested in the historical and scientific information we included in this episode? Like us on Facebook, or check out our website, sageandsavant.com, to find the facts behind the fiction. Would you like to get the episodes early and get access to added content? Join our Sage and Savant Patreon page. This month you will receive a special audio story, The Legend of Heartless House. And finally, as always, we urge you to remember that death is no barrier to science. Science.